If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1163, 1163. As you're turning there, remember where we've been for the last several weeks so far as we've been looking at Acts. The church has been growing in leaps and bounds in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside as the Spirit has worked and drawn many who did not already know Him, who had never trusted Him before, didn't know anything about Him, drew many to believe in Him for the first time. And even those in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas who didn't come to believe, who had not yet come to believe in Jesus, nevertheless held the apostles and the the Christians in great respect because of what the Lord was doing and proclaiming through them. And Luke has described the opposition that has come, first through the, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, opposition to the gospel from inside the church, as well as the beginnings of the resistance from outside the church. From the leadership council there in Jerusalem, uh, the Sanhedrin, primarily through the party of the Sadducees, the dominant political power of the day, but through the whole leadership structure there was resisting and pushing back against the gospel. And yet, even in the midst of that, the Lord has provided again and again and again, giving Peter and the others boldness to proclaim the truth. And each time the gospel was opposed, the Lord drew many more to believe for the first time. This morning we're going to look at another opposition, another danger, but a subtler one, uh, a more difficult one to recognize when we see it, but no less real for that. As always, when we open God's Word together, we need the Holy Spirit to speak to us from His Word. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 6. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to Your Word as we do every week, desperate for truth. We cannot get your truth from anywhere else but you. And so we need you to reveal yourself in your word this morning. And yet, Lord, though your word is completely true, our hearts are so poisoned that we will turn even your good and true word to mean what we want it to mean. To be a word of death instead of a word of life. And so, Lord, restrain us. Restrain our hearts. Restrain our sin. Open our eyes that we would see clearly Your great grace and mercy to Your people. Open our hearts that we would believe and repent and obey. May we live Your Word and glorify Your name because of this, Your Word, read and preached this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 6. This is God's Word. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve at tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. I have a hard time, you will be shocked to learn, finishing household chores. Maybe you've experienced something similar. Here's the thing. I have great intentions, and I'll start something, and I'll get partway through it, and then I'll see something else that also needs to be done so that I can finish the first thing, and then I go do that thing, but then I get partway through that, and I see something that has to be done to finish the second thing so that I can finish the first thing, and you see how the chain happens. And by the end of it, I've done nothing but a little bit of all of it. For example, totally a hypothetical example that has never once happened in real life ever, I promise, believe me. Sure. I'll start cleaning up the kitchen. And along the way, I'll find some Legos that get left on the table alongside some of the dirty dishes. So then I take the Legos up to the kids' room so that I can put them with the rest of the Legos. But then I see that there are Legos left out in the kids' room, and they're all mixed up with the Barbies and the Stuffies and the everything else. So then I'll work to separate them so that they all get put away properly. Then I realize that some of the most important stuffies are missing, and so I have to go on a treasure hunt to find the stuffies so that the kids will sleep tonight. Next thing I know, I'm folding and sorting laundry so that I can find the floor in Ivy's room, so that hopefully I can find the books that are scattered all over, so that I can organize the shelf properly, so that all the stuffed animals look together, so that I can put the Barbies away, so that the Legos will be put away and no longer landmines spread across the house for bare feet, and the living room straightened, so that I can clean up the kitchen. You understand why I don't actually ever get anything done here, right? <laughs> please, please tell me that I'm not the only one who struggles with that kind of distraction. My zeal to do everything, I get nothing done. It's easy to allow myself to be distracted from the chore that I started doing by starting on other things that, let's be clear, are also worth doing, even necessary. But then I never actually finish the first project that I started on. The struggle is real. But if that were all it was, partially finishing 15 chores instead of completely finishing two or three, it really wouldn't be that big a deal, right? Because let's be honest, the laundry needs to be done just as much as the kitchen needs to be cleaned and the toys put away. All of it needs to happen. But this same pattern plays out in our Christian walk as well. We start thinking about the commands that Jesus has given his people and almost immediately we get bogged down in the details. We, for example, want to spend more time reading God's word. But then we have to arrange our days so that we can get up early so that we can have some dedicated time to read God's Word. But then when we get up early, we've forgotten the coffee, and so we can't concentrate, and the coffee has to come first. Or we've set the alarm wrong or slept through it, and it goes off later than we planned, and then we don't have time. Or we need to find just the right Bible translation so that we will get the most out of it. Or we need the perfect journal so that we can make our notes just right and it has to be just the, the perfect journal to fit what we need. Or we have to find the perfect reading plan so that we'll be set up for the whole year and don't have to stop and think about it every morning what we're going to read. And of course that requires research to figure out which one is best and then we get on the internet and there are so many interesting theological rabbit holes that we can go down on the internet while we're looking for that perfect reading plan, on and on and on and on, we end up so distracted by one small thing after another that with the best intentions in the world, we never actually get around to obeying Christ by reading the Word that He has given us. Recently, we've looked at the beginnings of the church in Acts. And we've seen several of the ways that our adversary, Satan, has attacked the early church. Now, his overall goal, of course, as you know, is to destroy and discredit the gospel. 
to eliminate Christianity completely, to destroy Christians, and through them to discredit the gospel. But so far, his attacks have been, I guess we can call them blunt instruments, frontal assaults, obvious attacks. He stirs up opposition from the religious and civil leadership of the day. He has them order the apostles to be arrested and imprisoned, and then commands them not to preach in Jesus' name. The leadership throws them in jail, beats them, threatens their death, and as we'll see in future weeks, actually carries out that threat. All to prevent the spread of the gospel. And our blood is stirred. And we fantasize about how we would respond like the apostles when we are threatened with death or disaster, commanded not to preach in the name of Christ. What we would do for God if faced with that situation And then there are those who call themselves Christians, who identify with Christ, who are at least in name part of the church, and yet whose hypocritical actions prove that they have no share in Christ at all, who bring discredit on the church and on Christ by claiming to represent Him while doing that which is utterly antithetical to Him at all, things which He would condemn completely. Now, Let's be clear, on one level, this describes every single Christian who has ever lived. If we kept out all the people who do things contrary to Christ's honor, there would be no one left in this room at all, including me. I saw a funny sign uh, once. The the church is not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. (laughs) As long as we are in this life, as Christians, we will wrestle with sin. There are parts of each of our lives that just don't measure up to God's standard. We are constantly in the process of being sanctified, of being made more like Christ, but we're not there yet. This is true for every genuine Christian. But if you've been involved in the church generally for any length of time, you will know that there are also people who claim to be Christians who can talk the talk, but whose life does not support that claim in any way, who evidence no fruit of the Spirit. On one level, this group of people is a direct attack on the gospel and the honor of Christ. If I can put it this way, it is Satan's fifth column, if you will. It is an attempt to to undermine the church, to discredit the church, and therefore destroy the message of the gospel. Now, as an aside, this is why church discipline is so very necessary. No matter how uncomfortable it is, this is why it's necessary. The honor of Christ and the truth of the gospel are at stake. Thirty years ago, Brendan Brendan Manning described the situation with this tactic in this way. He said, you may have heard this quote, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny Him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That's awful. But here's the thing, it hasn't gotten better since the early to mid-90s. In fact, it's actually dramatically worse. There are a huge number of people today who refuse to come anywhere near a church or more precisely, who refused to come near a church again. They used to. They heard the gospel and loved the idea, but they didn't experience it. In their words, 
And this is, I'm quoting from uh, somebody in this situation. They, they said, We didn't leave the church because we didn't believe what you're teaching. We left the church because we saw by your actions that you don't believe what you're teaching. That is an absolute catastrophe. If you genuinely love Jesus and you want Him honored, when you give serious thought to this subversive attack, your blood will boil. Our Savior is being slandered. His good name is being dragged through the mud and worse, and people are leaving the church completely because of it. But there's a third tactic that Satan uses in concert alongside those first two. And it's probably the most destructive of all. Are you ready? Distraction. Our Lord has called His people called us to a specific task. Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified in the place of sinners. Proclaim that singular truth by our words and by our actions. Jesus was mighty in word and in deed and calls us to follow in His steps. Whether those steps lead us to great honor or to great shame and dishonor in the world's eyes, whether following Him leads the world to sit up and take notice or sigh in boredom, We are nonetheless called to preach the truth of Christ crucified in place of sinful humans to demonstrate that good news by our actions, by the way that we live our lives. The more Satan gets us focused on other things, even ostensibly good things, the more he gets us focused on other things, the less we're doing what we've been called by God to do. Satan would far rather have us caught up in the tyranny of the urgent. Fight the culture war. Oppose what the liberals are doing. Fill in with whatever thing du jour, battle du jour that we're fighting. Because when we're focused on those things, we have lost sight of our calling. His tactics have not changed in the intervening years since Acts. He still tries to destroy the gospel by force to come in and frontal assault it, although that doesn't happen as much here. It does happen. happens especially overseas. He does try to undermine the gospel through hypocrisy, and, and that happens some here. It happens a fair bit. But even more than that, he tries to distract Christians from our calling, from proclaiming the gospel with our words and works by all of the mess It goes on around us. All of the things that we rightly abhor but are not our primary calling of proclamation of the gospel. When these tactics are combined, most especially, they are particularly effective. In our passage this morning, we're going to be looking at an element of this, but before we can, before we can dig into what's going on here, we need to understand the background. Uh, And there's several aspects of this that we have to understand. We need some historical cultural background to make sense of the problem facing the church in in, in Acts 6, uh, as well as the surrounding situation that made the problem even more sticky than it might otherwise have been. First, we've got to understand the logistics. Because of the way that we typically read the Bible, especially the way that we preach the Bible in relatively small chunks, we tend to miss the way that it's all connected and how quickly all of this has happened. The, we can forget just how explosive the growth of the church has been and in how short a time. We're still, in Acts 6, we're still within maybe four to six months at the most 
from the crucifixion and resurrection. And the church in the area in and around Jerusalem has grown massively. There are some estimates that place the numbers of the church by Acts 6 at as as high as 20,000 members. A conservative estimate, it could not have been less than 5,000 to 7,000. Now, administering a church that is at least 5,000 members and maybe as many as 20,000, that is a huge project. That is an incredibly difficult logistical challenge. It's difficult now with all of the technological advantages that we have. Imagine how much more difficult it was in the first century. Second, so first is logistics. Second, history. Over the 400 years or so before Christ came, a number of Israelites had been removed, forcibly removed, exiled, refugees, refugees out of the Palestine area into other parts of what would become the Roman Empire. The descendants of those displaced people spoke Greek as their native language because that's what everybody spoke everywhere else. Their cultural assumptions were primarily that of the Greco-Roman cultures. They were faithful to God, but they spoke Greek and they lived amidst the Greeks and were influenced by, shaped by the peoples that surrounded them. Often they had even intermarried with those among whom they were living. But over those same centuries, of those who were sent away, some small percentage had been allowed to come back to Palestine. Certainly, many would come back for a regular or periodic pilgrimage to the temple there in Jerusalem. But there were a few, some small percentage, who had come back to live in and around Jerusalem. These returned peoples are called the Hellenists, Jews by blood and history, but who spoke Greek as their first language, and predominantly followed a Greco-Roman culture, though not the religion, obviously. At the same time, there were those who had not been required to leave Palestine, who remained for that 400 years, who primarily spoke Hebrew, or later in Jesus' day spoke Aramaic, who shunned Greco-Roman culture as that of an invading foreign power. These were called the Hebrews, again, described based on what language they speak. As you can probably imagine, there was quite a bit of antagonism between these two groups where they encountered each other there in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. People from both groups, both the Hellenists and the Hebrews, had come to believe in Christ and were now part of the church, which of course brought, imported that tension, that friction, that antagonism that had existed between them for decades and centuries, imported that now into the church. The third piece of necessary background is the Old Testament commands for the people of God. Luke mentions here the daily distribution for widows. In the Old Testament, the Lord commanded that His people care for those who were unable to provide for themselves. Typically, this gets summarized as widows and orphans, sometimes including strangers and aliens. The nature of society in the ancient world meant that these groups, widows and orphans, were pretty much guaranteed to be destitute. Only adult men could own or inherit property. When the husband or the father died, whatever provision there might have been with his life and his work evaporated, and they were left with nothing. God had ordered Israelite society in such a way that extended families were expected and, in fact, commanded to care for the destitute from within their own family. For example, if your father passed away, you were to take your mother into your home and provide for her needs. As part of your responsibility to the family, as part of your keeping of the fifth commandment even, honor your father and your mother. 
But in addition, likewise, if your brother passed away, you would take his children into your home and provide for them as if they were your own. This was part of the responsibility. The burden of care was first on the extended family. But of course, there would have been those who did not have an extended family for whom to care, who could care for them. For whatever reason, and for those cases, God's people at large, the people of God as a whole, were commanded to provide for their needs. From the scriptural record here and elsewhere, and from extra-biblical records from that day, it seems clear that this command was taken up wholeheartedly by the church. Part of how they understand, understood what it meant to be the people of God was to provide for those who could not provide for themselves, to care for the widows and orphans. Again, preach the gospel in word and in deed. Care for the widows and orphans, the destitute, was an important part of how the church understood its identity in the world. So there was a daily distribution for the destitute, probably of food, but possibly as well from just a monetary fund for those in the church who had nothing and could not provide for themselves. When we come to Christ, we bring with us all our history, all our opinions, all our prejudices, all of how we see the world. And God changes our hearts and He changes our minds to make us more like Himself, but that's a process. It happens over time. It's not an instantaneous event. He doesn't just snap his fingers and everything changes and we're all perfect. You know that. Given the underlying tensions between these two main cultural groups, there was bound to be a point of friction. The place where the pre-existing distrust between the Hebrews and the Hellenists would flare into resentment, murmuring and grumbling, and if left unchecked, would grow into open division within the church, dividing the body of Christ. In this case, the flashpoint was the distribution to the destitute, but it would have been something else if it hadn't been this. Now, Luke doesn't give us any indication that the, what caused the neglect of the Hellenist widows. It might have been the result of somebody sinning, consciously preferring one group to the other, but it could also just have been administrative error, trying to keep up with a massively ballooning church. We don't know, but whatever caused it, This was the place that Satan stirred up resentment. And a complaint was brought to the attention of the apostles who immediately recognized that this was a problem that had to be dealt with. It was not to the glory of Christ that some of the destitute in the church were being kept destitute by the failure of the church to care for their needs. That was not to Christ's glory. Christians were being distracted from the worshiping God by the resentment that they felt over this situation. It needed to be addressed. It needed to be resolved. The apostles, of course, could have waited in themselves, suggesting direct solutions, maybe overseeing the distribution themselves to make sure that everything went the way that it was supposed to go. They were in charge, after all. God had given them the keys of the kingdom. But that would likely have taken them away from what God had specifically called them to be doing, praying, preaching Christ crucified and raised. Now, Satan's attack here is subtle. It is difficult even to see, never mind to resist, because both these tasks are good. Both were necessary for the honor of Christ and the growth of His church. But if the apostles were to tackle this other good thing, caring for the widows, they would have had to neglect what God had called them to do primarily, praying and preaching. 
The adversary was trying to distract them from their calling using something good, necessary even, to do it. Now, as I've said before, Satan doesn't have any new tricks. He works the same ways today that he did in Acts. He is not creative. Distraction from Christ's call is easily the most common tactic that we will face in our lives. It is an everyday, moment-by-moment plague attacking us. And mostly, we don't even notice. Because we're looking at the wrong direction. We're looking for the frontal assault that we see in every disagreement. When the Allies were preparing for D-Day, they put together an entire fleet of wooden ships painted to look like the real thing that had exactly one purpose. Convince the Germans that the attack was going to come at a different place, anywhere other than where the actual beaches were designated, on a different day, any day other than June 6th. That was it. The whole goal of that fleet was to convince the Germans to move their armies and their defenses away from where we were actually going to attack. We must not allow ourselves to shift our attention and energy away from the point that our adversary is actually attacking, that he actually wants to capture the gospel itself, the proclamation of the gospel by our words and our deeds. We are called to proclaim by word and deed the atoning sacrifice, the substitution of the righteous one for unrighteous ones like us. We are called to proclaim that to all those around us who are perishing, who are trying to wipe themselves clean with befouled and bloody rags. This is the call on the life of every Christian. Proclaim the glory of God in rescuing lost, broken, dead men like you and like me. Don't lose sight of that as the core focus of your life, Christian. That is the most important thing. The world around us is dying of thirst. And you know where the inexhaustible fountain of living water is. Point them to it. And yet, no one can do everything. You love Jesus. You are not Jesus. In Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You are not the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the metaphor of the body. Each body part has a specific task, and the eye cannot do the job of the ear, nor the ear that of the hands. Each is important, each is necessary, but they're not interchangeable. We need each other. God gives gifts to each of us, but they are not the same gifts, and we are called to use our particular gifts from God to proclaim the gospel in unique ways, ways that are in line with the gifts that He has given to each of us in our particular moment in life. For some, that's gifts of clear explanation of Scripture and theology, teaching and proclaiming the gospel in that way. For others, it's works of mercy to those who are suffering. For still others, it's acts of service to the body, doing the necessary but unglamorous work that keeps us functioning. Each of us has been, and none of those are any less than any of the others. None of those are any greater than any of the others. They're just different. Each of us has been placed by God in a specific location and job and family and friend network and so on and so forth, called to be living proclamations of His grace in those places through the gifts that He gives. 
We are called, each of us and all of us together, are called to be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden so that the love and the glory of God will shine through us so the whole world will see it and believe and trust in Christ. When we are using the gifts that He has given us to declare His glory in the gospel by word or by deed, we are fulfilling Christ's call in our lives. We are all and each of us called to study His word and pray to Him and pursue His glory in our individual lives through the gifts that He has given for the good of the church and for the good of the world. For the apostles in this moment, that meant delegating. That meant not being distracted from the primary call God had put in their lives and seeing men appointed who could fulfill the necessary tasks without taking away from the proclamation but increasing it. The apostles couldn't do everything themselves. Just like Moses was called and had to delegate the administration of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, so the apostles had to do the same. They understood that their calling was to pray and preach and anything that took them away from that calling, however good it might have been, was not good for them. So they brought the church together. The whole church came together and asked them to select men to handle this situation so that the apostles could fulfill the specific task that God had called them to without distraction. But what was the church looking for? Were they looking for men with experience in logistics and distribution men who knew how to manage big projects with lots of moving parts were they looking for experts in mercy no what were they looking for look at verse 3 men of good repute or reputation full of the spirit and of wisdom in the church and out of it there is no greater requirement than character and vital connection to the Spirit. There is no greater requirement than character and connection to the Spirit. You can learn skills. You can learn the task itself. You can learn the job. Character is an expression and summary of the truth of your heart and your vital connection to the Lord. There is no greater requirement than that. And when they selected these men, What was the result? Look at verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The priests were those most likely to oppose the gospel because they had been supplanted by the one sacrifice of Christ. And yet through this, What could have been a distraction, what could have been a division of the church, what could have been racially motivated bias that destroyed the gospel. Through this, even the priests, many of the priests, became obedient to the faith, followed Christ, believed the gospel. When we... Excuse me. When we each follow God's call on our lives, pursuing His glory, God blesses His people. We grow in our understanding of His grace, and people will come to know Christ in a real way for the first time. And most of all, above all else, God will be glorified. That is our primary calling. 
the chief end of man, you've heard from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man, the purpose for which humanity exists, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is your call, Christian. That is what you are here to do. That is why you exist, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. May He protect us from the distractions of the adversary, from the swirling fog and miasma that surrounds us in this life. May He protect us from the distractions of the adversary and grant us the grace to obey His call in our lives and so glorify Him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so distractible and so distracted. We carry around in us, in our, in our heads and in our pockets, everything in the world to take us away from you. We need your grace. We need you to focus our small minds, to draw our distracted hearts back to you that we may glorify You with whole hearts, with calm minds focused intently on You that have laid aside every distraction and all the sin that clings so closely, and that we may run with perseverance toward You, the race that You have marked out for us. Lord Jesus, none of that's going to happen if You don't pour Your Spirit out in us. We cannot do it alone we are so small and so fragile and distractible we pray because of the work of your son and by the work of your spirit in us that you would make us pleasing servants give us grace that we may glorify you and enjoy you for our entire lives with everything in us and all of the gifts that you have given us Make your name great in us, Lord Jesus. We pray it in that very name. Amen.